0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of 3Ps in a Pod, the new podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm the editor, Paul Jarvis, and I'm joined by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. In this episode, Jonathan is speaking to Fatuma Toure Ibrahima, Practice Manager of the PPP Group at the World Bank's Infrastructure Finance PPPs and Guarantees Department. After which, we will reconvene to pick out some of the main points from that conversation. So, over to you, Jonathan.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today, Fatima.
2: Thank you, Jonathan, for having me.
1: So earlier this year, the World Bank posted their numbers on how investment has changed compared to the previous years in which PPPs can play a significant part. And at the time, they were saying this was a positive sign for the emerging post-COVID economy, that private investment was rebounding. Can you tell me how that's going and kind of break down some of the statistics, including what sectors we're seeing and which areas around the globe are resurging the best?
2: Thank you very much, Jonathan. This is an important question, and I think we need strong data to support it. At the bank, we have built a database to track private sector participation in infrastructure. We call it the PPI database, and we've been tracking data for 35 years. So it's really a powerful metric for private investment mobilization in infrastructure, particularly in emerging markets. And the database provides information on more than 10,000 infrastructure projects dating from 1984 to now. So this is helpful to know because when we look at 2020 data, we can see that due to the global pandemic, private capital flows to infrastructure across the developing world slumped to around 50 billion, close to half historic levels. And in 2021, despite a strong rebound to 76 billion, what we can see is really that overall flows remain well below long-term trends. And the reality is that total number of infrastructure projects supported by the private sector is the lowest in a decade. In terms of sectors, transport has led the recovery. Private investments in transport bounced back sharply. Uh, because we will remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, transport infrastructure investment were at a near standstill. So within transport, private investment in airports drove the decrease. The sudden decrease of air travel drove a drastic decline in airport PPPs in 2020. So this is something that we know. In 2021, air travel returned, but fiscal constraints due to COVID persisted. And as a result, some governments started to divest from national airports and starting to see private investment to cover their management or leases, as we have seen in Brazil. I think this could be the start of maybe a new trend. Now, from a geographical standpoint, the rebound has been concentrated in just three regions, East Asia and Pacific, that's one group of regions that call them in the bank, Europe and Central Asia, and Latin America and the Caribbean, with the rest of the developing world really continuing to see declining finance. We are compiling the data for 2022, and clearly infrastructure investments will be dampened by the conflict in Ukraine we are already witnessing a number of the region's construction projects facing difficulties.
1: So going forward into these emerging markets, these dynamic environments, what are some of the common risks and perceptions that you're having to bump up against? And how do you navigate those?
2: This is a critical question because we know that project finance risks, such as the ones that uh, investors focus on, include political risk, foreign exchange risk, construction risk, operations risk, just to list a few. And these are all very real in emerging markets and have to be taken into account in any PPP transaction. However, these days we are also seeing much broader forces at play that sometimes catch investors, actually all of us off guard, This is due to the fact that we are living in an increasingly globalized and disrupted world. And the risks that we are seeing include climate, fallout from global events such as COVID and the current war in Ukraine. So these are different types of risks. We do not say it enough, but we should also take into account not only these risks, but those arising from rapid advances in technology. And there are difficulties to create, you know, the right contracts and avoid creating stranded assets in the infrastructure space. So technology risk is also real. The World Bank takes this global and forward-looking view in its PPP program and works to rebuild resilience into projects, really to protect them from such risks. And, you know, we're trying to work on different fronts at the country level. We started to work on the country climate and development reports, and these are our new core diagnostic reports that integrate climate change and development considerations in the way we do business. So climate is now part of our DNA, and these reports aim really at identifying concrete priority actions to support the low carbon and resilient transition. Regarding other disruptions, we generally try to generate global knowledge on how to protect projects from certain risks. For example, we published several guidance notes right after COVID to support governments deal with the sudden changes in demand and force-majority issues. And we also have a forthcoming publication on PPPs in an age of disruption, so stay tuned on that. And lastly, I think it's important to recognize the challenge of addressing the infrastructure finance gap in emerging countries while simultaneously building climate-smart pathways. So the World Bank is developing a toolkit for governments to address climate in infrastructure PPPs. And we have just launched this report. I would also invite you to look at it. So these toolkits are intended to enable both governments and advisors to address key questions on how to. And the how is usually where difficulties remain with our counter counterpart to mainstream climate consideration into real infrastructure and PPP projects.
1: Fantastic. And I know we're going to come to climate discussions later, but as you just touched on it, it's the how that can be the really difficult part of PPPs. And as you mentioned right at the beginning of the segment, this is a shifting sands kind of outlook in the world. So what are the big challenges at the moment that economies are having to face in implementing PPPs, which we know are tough to do?
2: Clearly, PPPs in emerging economies face constraints both on the demand and supply side. And I think we're all very familiar with that. On the one hand, there is a lack of well-structured investment-ready projects coming to the market, And this increases the risk and uncertainty, I would say, over investment returns. And consequently, this would inhibit the bankability of projects, as you know. We know that a number of projects are not necessarily bankable without support from government or multilateral development banks. In addition, in several emerging economies, more work needs to be done to make the enabling environment conducive for PPPs. And this is a huge part of the work that we do. For instance, we need transparent procurement processes that is based on a strong PPP process framework as well. We try to help countries work on a more robust legal institutional framework, and at times work with them for adequate dispute resolution framework for PPPs. So these are just some areas that you know, we are working on. On the other hand, When we look at on the investor side, most investors have very little experience in managing infrastructure assets. Infrastructure assets are quite different, especially in managing risks that are inherent not only in infrastructure projects, but also investment instruments. So infrastructure assets are very heterogeneous. You know, working on an airport or working on a road, projects are really different. And that doesn't necessarily make it easier for investors. And what we have observed is that traditionally, investors are highly risk averse. And to invest in developing countries, they would need to rethink sometimes how best to engage in emerging markets, you know, while safeguarding their assets. So that's on the investor side. When we look at institutional investors in particular, we know that they are also subject to more or less strict regulation on funding and solvency regimes, on accounting rules. And there's a lot of interest on how institutional investors can contribute, but that also comes with some challenges. So such regulations are often misaligned. We see short-term incentive that prevent them from operating in their true long-term capacity. There are also efforts that need to be put in on both sides and institutions, such as the World Bank, can help bridge this supply and demand gap. So this is where we position ourselves. And we try to address the issues both from the supply and demand side, as I said, but at times the challenges are beyond the control of the parties involved in PPP contracts, uh, as you know. The current macroeconomic instability and supply chain issues that have occurred during COVID are good examples. And during the COVID crisis, we've tried to track how COVID has impacted infrastructure projects. And we've seen more than 300 infrastructure projects in low- and mid-income countries were either delayed or canceled due to the pandemic. I can say more on that, but I think you know it's really important to know that tracking this allows us to also respond to countries' demand when it comes to how they have suffered from the travel limitations, the shipping disruptions, and others.
1: You said about how investors best engage. Does the bank give guidance on that? Or do you have any advice for private sector listeners that might be wondering how to really make a successful engagement in emerging markets and, and help these pipelines?
2: I think a successful engagement in emerging markets really needs to be seen from upstream to downstream. You know, very often we focus on the contract, but we really need to take a step back and look at the overall enabling environment, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the transparency of procurement processes, the legal and regulatory framework, the institutions, because you want that capacity to stay.
1: Yeah, definitely. So a big challenge is global macroeconomics. We've got central banks left, right and centre raising interest rates. And this must have reverberations around the world, even if it's not happening in that specific country. So how is this kind of infrastructure finance sensitive to these credit tightenings? What trends are you seeing emerging? And how do emerging markets which, as you say, sometimes are already in fiscal constraints deal with this increased cost of finance?
2: Yeah, this is a great question, Jonathan. This year will be a pivotal one for private investment commitments in infrastructure with many opportunities to progress from the pandemic. I think that's something that we need to recognize. But with the global rate hike and the anticipation of further increasing interest rate, private investment commitments are also highly tentative. So it is yet too early to measure the impact of recent interest rate increase and credit tightening on private investment. And here really I'm focusing on in infrastructure in developing regions. So conventionally, the characteristics of infrastructure assets such as stable, long life, cash generating, low sensitivity to the economic cycle makes them relatively less sensitive to changes in interest rates. However, the reality is that private Appetite for infrastructure investment is impacted by country-specific factors, such as strong political, will, clear legal, and regulatory framework. For example, establishing a PPP unit or enacting a PPP law may have an impact at times on how investors could come in. So establishing the right enabling environment for private sector to participate in infrastructure projects is critical. And I think we need to seize this opportunity To really work on these fronts, we need to remember that the post pandemic recovery efforts will rely strongly on both signals and action from government, multilateral partners to rally private capital across every region. So these two factors are really important as we come out of the crisis. And because of the limited availability of finance, we have increased our support to countries that try to manage fiscal commitments and contingent liabilities in PPP projects. This is huge. We need to continue to work together to develop the framework to manage such risks and help build capacity both at the Ministry of Finance, at the country PPP units, government officials, and within the sectors to help manage fiscal commitments and contingent liabilities in PPPs.
1: Interesting. So you mentioned that kind of meeting point, that there has to be at both sides. And the public and private have to play their roles. And one of the major places where this is happening at the moment is in climate finance. And we saw before the pandemic, and even during it, trillions, literally trillions pledged towards this area. I mean, that's the scale of the problem. But at the same time, in the last kind of year, we've seen places, if you take the UK, for example, attitudes have changed in some respects about fossil fuels, we've seen fracking come back online or plan to come back online. So in emerging markets and where the World Bank is working, what is the temperature on climate focus on projects? And what can the private sector do going forward?
2: Thank you for this question, Jonathan. And I would like to go back to our PPI database that I've mentioned earlier. And what we are seeing in the numbers is that although the post-pandemic recovery in energy investment was not strong, the private investments that occurred in 2021 were greener than ever. 95% of electricity generation projects were renewable compared to 90% the previous year. So this is important, you know, and this is one of the good news that we need to make sure that we communicate. The commitment to decrease the reliance on fossil fuels can also be seen in the constantly declining number of coal power plants sponsored by the private sector. And when we look at the numbers from the early 2010s to 2020, the number of coal projects have declined from 18 in 2011 to just one in 2020. So these are projects that are not necessarily projects where the bank is involved, but we're looking at overall projects where there has been contribution of the private sector to some extent. And when we look at, you know, renewable technology uptake is certainly on the rise. So the point here is that, you know, the technology is being used to displace conventional projects across the board.
1: That's fascinating that it's greener than ever. It's quite amazing. So you think that this movement is... Carrying on regardless of difficulties that the market is facing and that you're not seeing any kind of resurgence in coal or dirty fuel kind of projects
2: I think we need to recognize the good news you know there are greener projects and even in countries like Zambia we have an interesting example where scaling solar in Zambia has led results you know the bank and IFC combine their instruments you know loan and Bank Guarantee to help the government quickly procure and develop large-scale solar project with private financing. So a lot needs to be done, but you know we also need to recognize the fact that multilateral and development finance institutions can clearly play a significant role in expanding the support to newer and more advanced renewable power technologies.
1: So where do partnerships come and play in this? We know that we see it in public and private partnerships and other models that bring together the two sectors, but is there room for more of this kind of collaborative working and where does it fit into the larger system?
2: Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we are used to certain types of risks, such as political risk, foreign exchange, construction, etc. But with the type of risks that we are seeing today that are really, you know, related to climate or global events, it's really important for the partnership element between public and private to be stronger and to involve all stakeholders you know the mdb's will not be able to address such an issue on their own we need to bring in the private sector and we're trying to actually mobilize private capital to support infrastructure as much as possible so that conversation needs to continue but we also need to bring other stakeholders you know other donors the Civil Society and the clients who are benefiting from these projects, so I would really insist on the critical elements around the partnership and We discussed it earlier. the technology element brings an additional complexity, so another type of private sector that should be involved
1: great, and as you say, we need to be working together on this it 's big problems, and there 's a lot to do so The more we can work together, the more we can maximise, the better. So I think that's a nice note to finish on. So thank you very much, Fatima, for joining me today.
2: Thank you.
1: Well, that was
0: uh, really good, really enjoyable. And just taking a point, actually, that Fatima made at the end of that podcast, commenting on the need to include the civil society in projects. I think that has often been the downfall of the PP model in parts of the world in that the local population can often see these deals as agreements over their heads, you know, often between powerful, large companies, multinational companies, and then the central or regional government. So I think bringing in some sort of democratic element, including local representatives, for example, should actually become much more common to get that local engagement and support.
1: Absolutely. I mean, these are the people that the projects actually serve and these are the users and I remember talking to someone who works for a firm that is an expert or one of a market leader in emerging markets and they just said that these people are the best ambassadors that you can have for a project that if they're involved it's going to be the most useful a project can be and that's what it's all about. Like we said, it's project preparation 101. It's it's got to be the right project. And if you don't have all the stakeholders involved in the most optimal way, you're not going to make as big of an impact. And that's what projects in emerging markets are about. It's about bankability and it's about impact. I think
0: though, obviously, we can't really avoid the sort of the main point around the the figures. And I think it is a bit worrying that investment has fallen overall compared to the past 10 years. But interestingly, I think a potential new trend in governments divesting out of airports, you mentioned, I think. That's perhaps a clear example of how the pandemic has made many public authorities realise that they don't need to hold the risks of running these sorts of assets. And that's maybe a change that we will see coming through more and more.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting points in the statistics pool overall like you said with transport it's now becoming a hotbed of investment as the case is so strong but is one that had been challenged during the pandemic and now we see 58 percent of the total investment is going into transport projects compared to 2019 so that's fascinating and also the geographies and how Overall, year on year, we've seen an increase, but that has really been a number of stories wrapped into one overall figure. Like we said, the World Bank showed that Uzbekistan and Brazil have really pulled a lot of investment, whereas other areas such as sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East have actually trailed still on their previous years. So what that says about investors and where they want to go And maybe it's the pipelines that they see coming down the line. That could be a factor. But it's a complicated world. And these stats are just one snapshot of that, but they do tell a really interesting story. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think one interesting thing she mentioned in the interview was in reference to the potential for stranded assets. And I think if we look in the context of the current energy security concerns, particularly across Europe, there's been something of a pushback towards... The use of fossil fuels. So yeah, as countries look to sort of bridge the gap, really, and we've seen that in the UK, for example, the um, the moratorium on fracking being removed recently. But I think, you know, in reality, we talk to private investors about this sort of stuff all the time. Really, at the moment, uh, you know, ESG is a big topic with all of them, and where they put their money these days is under such scrutiny that I would suggest that quite a few would be quite reticent to get involved with those kind of projects that could become stranded in the future. I think there's certainly potential for a lot of the fossil fuel kind of assets to end up as stranded assets.
1: Definitely. One of the things that Fatima said was that these investments that have been going and have been greener than ever, despite a lot of the turmoil that's going on in the energy markets. And, you know, you see commentators from different sides of the spectrum all kind of pleading the case for some fossil fuel projects. And I know this is something which you are passionate about as well, but this is a chance for emerging markets to leap the kind of industrial revolution that developed markets have already been through. Here in the UK, we've burnt so much coal that we now. Are kind of transitioning but places like sub-Saharan Africa with abundant energy sources could leap that all together and not need to build these stop gap potentially stranded fossil fuel projects.
0: Yes and that's something that I know one advisor in particular has sort of talked to me about regularly over recent years in regards to how African countries in particular have managed to make a big leap when it comes to telecommunications. And the development of mobile phones has meant that, unlike in developed economies where you have the infrastructure from landlines having been in place for, in some cases, sort of a century or so, actually, the African nations, in many cases, have not needed to put that infrastructure in. They've gone straight to the telecommunications masts that are needed for mobile phones and have, as a result, the number of people with access to phones has jumped to you know, developed country levels at a huge rate. And I think using that analogy, you can see the similar opportunities in green infrastructure, whether it's you know small solar facilities, uh, wind power, all that sort of thing that actually, whereas before you needed a huge network of interconnected grids to move energy effectively from one place to another. The green revolution gives many developed nations the opportunity to build things locally and deliver that energy at a local point, which gives them the chance to make that great leap forward.
1: Definitely. I mean, a lot of the drivers of the current trends in in the energy markets are relatively recent you know just this year we 've seen a lot of turmoil and and obviously pandemic has also had an impact, but the backdrop of climate change is still slowly inching its way forward, and I think that long term horizon and that long term change feels inevitable, and that certainly seems like what is driving the thinking of these investors with these long term returns. they want to invest in what 's good for the long term, not just for the next you know foreseeable period.
0: I think another point that was made and is obviously a big part of what the World Bank does is that there's focus on the enabling environment in emerging markets. It's something that is not new, really. It's been known for a long time that that's what's needed. And you talk to any private investor, and they will tell you that they will look at a country's you know, environment for investment before they look at whether a project is good or bad. But I wonder, you know, how far the World Bank and its advisors can really get in changing the mindset of governments that are perhaps, you know, much more focused on a, a shorter cycle or so focusing perhaps on a major flagship project. I think creating that enabling environment, as we all know, can take several years, meaning that the government may not have anything physical to show for those efforts by the time that the next election comes around. And if you're a an elected minister who has said at the start of your term, I want to build energy project, transport project, whatever it might be. It's a difficult sell to say to them, no, you have to take a step back. You need to get things set up because they will obviously just turn around and and the argument is, well, that's all very well, but why should I provide a nice stable environment for effectively my successor potentially? and so that's really difficult
1: it, it is a, it is a difficult one you're right I mean that's a problem we see all over the world this kind of short termism but this is where leadership comes into play doesn't it? this is where you need strong political leaders who will drive through projects and solve the capacity issues but at the same time that capacity problem is also an opportunity for private sector to supply some of that leadership as well. I remember talking to another pioneering firms who said that if you can come in and offer a really exciting project, you work with the authorities, they upskill, you're also building relationships. You're there and you're you've got boots on the ground. The potential for the next chapter is massive. That once you've got those relationships and you've proven to the stakeholders that you're going to do this in, in the right way that chicken and egg problem of having the advisors to do projects is solved and you could really be a market leader and i don't think that should be overlooked that yeah, you know, like i said it's a chicken and egg problem but it's not unsolvable these flagship projects do do wonders in terms of Obviously, they make an impact, but they also create the environment for smaller projects to follow in their wake. And you only need a few to get going and then it can be a self-sustaining pipeline. And that's one of the main things the World Bank and other multilaterals try to create is that environment that lets things carry on once they're not needed anymore. And the private sector has a really important place in making that happen. It can't all be put onto the government side of it it's a partnership yeah absolutely that partnership is key isn't it
0: and again the world bank and the work that it is doing and does fits into that partnership and you know is at the center of that i think so yeah that's um, that's something for it to continue to
1: do fantastic well thank you very much paul especially thank you fatima for joining us today and thank you listeners